Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's September 15th, 2020. Our show today is Out of a Brick Throat, How Poets and Poetry Matter. We'll open with Aesthetic from the 1961 release Aesthetics by George Russell. In the conversation to come, we'll make reference to the American modernist poet Ezra Pound and what the literary scholar Hugh Kenner termed the Pound Era in his 1971 book. Pound is perhaps best known for the poetic movement he named Imagism and for his endlessly expanding book, The Cantos. But he may be better known for his arrest for treason in 1945 for his over 300 broadcasts for The American Hour on Radio Roma, attacking the United States, Roosevelt, Roosevelt's family, Churchill, and the Jews, while praising Hitler's Mein Kampf and recommending eugenics to conserve the best of the race, rather than commit race suicide. And yet, even as Pound's embrace and promotion of fascism was well known, he was awarded the Bollingen Prize by the Library of Congress in 1949. But Ezra Pound is not our topic today. Rather, we wish to sweep him aside to make space for other poets and other ways of reading and writing poetry. It takes some effort to discover how and why poetry can matter, especially when that poetry has been forgotten and those poets nearly purged from our literary history. Poetry matters very much when we confront the ideological capture of our institutions of learning, when we discovered the politics of poetry. And poetry matters very much when the rehabilitation of the fascist poet coincides with the McCarthy era in America. Today, we'll resurface three poets on the political left who wrote during the 1930s and 40s. Muriel Rukeyser, Genevieve Taggart, and Martha Millet. Rukeyser is easily the best known of the three, and her great poem series, The Book of the Dead, has recently been reissued by West Virginia University Press. It's a powerful account of one of the worst industrial catastrophes in American history, one that killed hundreds of workers, most of them African-American. Our guest today, Sarah Ehlers, speaks of this work as a history that hurts, sung from a brick throat. Genevieve Taggart, a socialist affiliated with the Communist Party, actually published 12 books of poetry beginning in 1922, as well as a lively biography of Emily Dickinson. Communist poet Martha Millette, a red diaper baby, was fired for her political views, and much of her work has gone unpublished or is out of print. One of those unpublished manuscripts is an investigation into the life, work, and influence of Ezra Pound, tentatively titled The Ezra Pound Myth, written during the same period that Kenner worked on the Pound era. Sarah Ehlers is an associate professor of English at the University of Houston and author of Left of Poetry, Depression America and the Formation of Modern Poetics, published in 2019 by the University of North Carolina Press. And now, Out of a Brick Throat, How Poets and Poetry Matter, with Sarah Ehlers on Interchange on WFHB. Let's begin by trying to understand poetry as a field of political contention. I think it's in the Millet section where you highlight a uh, 1938 debate over the topic poetry, dead or alive. Uh, the humanity is always answering claims about its demise, uh, where an English professor wrote, quote, it has no mourners because nine out of ten persons never knew it was even alive, and the other one refuses to recognize its demise. American civilization is active, virile, and extrovert. Poetry has no place in it. Your whole book assumes poetry matters a great deal, uh, maybe as much because it is used uh, not only by uh, poets, uh, but by empire itself, even if it tries to pretend poetry doesn't matter. In the 30s, there's a new sense of the 
possible social or political function of, of the poem or of the social role of poetry. But there's also a kind of renewed skepticism about the efficacy of writing poems at all. So I was less interested in what poems could do and more interested in the formation of this idea or ideal the, of poetry as having a role in resistance movements. Where did this idea that poems do anything in the world come from? Mm-hmm. And how was it formed at this particular time? And how was that playing out in different debates about genre? So across the chapters, I'm looking at things as different as experimental um, multimedia documentary poems and you know songs written in the tradition of, of nursery rhymes and thinking about why these diverse genres were all thought at some point or by writers associated with the communist and popular front left to be the kind of genre that could do some kind of political work. You know, if I think about the landscape of literary criticism and poetry criticism, especially from the time that I conceived of this book as a dissertation to the publication of the book to now, that the interest in poetry's association with socialism and communism has become much more prevalent in the field. As 2008 was happening, we were finding ourselves in um, the midst of an economic recession that was drawing all kinds of parallels with the Depression, that there was a sort of aporia where poets weren't going back to these poets. There were a few names that would come up. Rukeyser was usually one of them, but that there was a whole landscape that was being left out of those conversations. I think one of the interesting things um, this book does as well, and I think partly it, you know, it's a focus of the book throughout, is trying to understand how certain forms of writing, certain ways of reading, uh, basically within the romantic ver- romantic mode, which we still find ourselves in, I suppose, how they're emptied of content or political content. And one of the forms you talk about particularly is the lyric. Uh, again, it's a form that's being talked about at the time and being discussed as a romantic construction. But yet there's a struggle, I guess, for control of the lyric as a form so that it isn't just seen as a romantic um, poem that centers a individual. Absolutely. And I sort of see this kind of as a product of two different historical moments. You know, as I talk about in the book, at the during the 30s, the lyric was often dismissed out of hand as, you know, as you say, sort of being the expression of a bourgeois individual or a fascist authoritarian personality encapsulated by that pronoun I. Um, And that's part of the, you know, historical discourse of the 30s, and that wasn't shared by all 30s poets. But the other thing that I was interested in was the way that after the 70s um, and 80s in U.S. poetry criticism, the lyric becomes sort of banished and the de-centered, non-subjective poem that's associated with the language movement becomes the formal location for radical politics. And so I was working against the idea of the lyric as fundamentally bourgeois or conservative or liberal, you know, pick your derogatory term, not just from the perspective of left critics working against new critical ideals. And so, for example, you know, Carrie Nelson sort of pushes against the lyric by replacing it with workers' ballads and songs and folk traditions and poems, um, as well as that other strain of left criticism associated with language poetry, where radical experiment becomes the site of 
radical politics. And so I was I was attempting to rehistoricize the lyric and in rehistoricizing the lyric through the left, I'll also re-theorize it as a political form. But I think the other thing that's related to that that you brought up in your question is the question of content. For a lot of these poets, it really comes down to the relationship between content and form. Um, and that, you know, I would take Martha Millette as an example. She's not arguing for traditional forms, nor is she arguing for modernist experimental forms. She's arguing for left content within whatever form one chooses. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Out of a Brick Throat, How Poets and Poetry Matter. And our guest is Sarah Ehlers, author of Left of Poetry, Depression America, and the Formation of Modern Poetics. In this segment, we're talking about the class politics that determine which poets and poems are taught in elite universities. So I'm a first-generation college student. I grew up in a rural working-class community, and I started my PhD program in 2007, just before the stock market crash. And that year, my father lost his job. He was a, a union coal miner his entire life. And at the same time that my family was struggling with that, I was, for the first time in my life, confronting the class politics of elite higher education. And I think for me, a lot of my interest in these poets and in reading them the way that I do came from what I saw as admonitions about taste and admonitions about how to read that had been codified by people in positions of power. And I saw the recuperation of not just of this work, not just of these poems, but of these ways of thinking about poems as some at least small way to counteract that system. But I think the other thing that I would say related to new criticism versus um, language and the sort of the ways that we're trained to read is that one of the things that I was thinking about as a larger question in the book is recalibrating the relationship between the evaluative claims that we make about poems and the analytical claims that we make about their politics. Um, And so often, so many of the poems that I read in this book are kind of dismissed as bad poems, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some kind of interesting analytical claim that we can make about their politics. Um, And at the same time, you know, I think that experimental poetry is more highly valued, or at least was more highly valued in you know, the academy as I entered it, and that 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 kind of evaluative claim also became a claim about the politics of those poems. Well, that's pretty fascinating. And uh, I think it was, uh, didn't uh, I think Charles Bernstein just win the Bollingen Prize or? Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah. So the same one that Pound controversially won. Yeah, yeah. Pound, whose, whose poetry apparently matters more than his politics. So Pound is a central figure, not so much a central figure in your book. You begin in some ways with Pound, almost unnamed in some ways. So like you don't really talk about Hugh Kenner, who wrote the book, The Pound Era. That's in the, the Millette chapter. It was a rhetorical strategy. You know, I was I was talking about her trying to place her study of Pound or replace her study of Pound with Kenner's. And so because her name has been alighted from literary history, I purposefully alighted his from mine. Yeah. 
So, uh, so there is such a thing as the pound era, and in, in according to Hugh Kenner, and this encapsulates one of the one of the problems of of the book, you know, that the book is trying to shed light on and to discuss ways in which there are other things besides pound and the ways pound read and wrote poetry and the ways pound uh, taught other people to read poetry and even the politics of pound is essential here as well and how the academy decided, I suppose, or was able to place Pound as a poet as opposed to a political actor. Um, so those things are essential and maybe tell the story itself of how how these things matter in ways that we're not, I don't think many of us think about in terms of poetry. Oh, ab- absolutely. And I mean, I think something that I would say in, um, is that I th- among scholars of modernist poetry, you know, I, there's the general sense that we've moved past the Pound era and I think that's probably true in this particular moment more than ever. But the question that I was asking is, where is the unacknowledged residue of the pound era? Right? You know, have we really given it up or do we just think that we have? That was the the one of the questions that I was thinking through and I think that I mentioned this in one of my chapters at some point while I was finishing up the book, pound for some reason was being discussed on NPR and he was referred to as a fascist propagandist. There was no mention made of him being a poet. And I found that to just be really fascinating. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. I, I mean, I understand uh, that, the, you know, that is something you should mention about Pound. Uh, but he was one of the, I, at the time anyway, one of the essential poets of the century. Yes. And it had an extraordinary influence on the poetry scene and on the way that poetry studied even now. And I think this goes back to new criticism as well. And, and something that I think through in the book is that there are things like new criticism or the pound era that that we, and when I say we, I, I mean academic readers of poetry, believe that we have wholesale rejected and that there maybe needs to be more attention to the way in which those political and aesthetic ideologies linger on. It's time for a break. When we return, we'll focus on Muriel Rukeyser's poem sequence about the 1931 Hawk's Nest Tunnel disaster in West Virginia. This is Josh White with Silicosis is Killing Me from 1936. Stay with us. You robbed me of my youth and health. All you brought for me was this. You a dirty robber and a thief. I'll Dirty robber and a thief. Rob you of my right to live, and all you brought for me was green. I was there digging that tunnel. For six bitter days. I was there digging that tunnel. Welcome back to Interchange. Muriel Rukeyser's The Book of the Dead, published in 1938, 
commemorates the worst industrial accident in U.S. history, the Hawk's Nest Tunnel disaster of 1931 in Golly Bridge, West Virginia. In this terrible disaster, an undetermined number of men, likely somewhere between 700 and 800, died of acute silicosis, a lung disorder caused by prolonged inhalation of silica dust, after working on a hydroelectric project for Union Carbide. Come and cool my fever I'm gonna meet my Jesus. God knows I'll soon be dead. Briefly, if you don't mind, can you give us a little capsule of who Muriel Rukeyser was? So when I think of Rukeyser, I often think of uh, Kenneth Rexroth's description of Rukeyser as the greatest poet of her exact generation. The reason that I like this description of Rukeyser is because I think it encapsulates the ways that she was deeply involved in the political struggles of her era, starting with her coverage of the Scottsboro trial to her coverage of the People's Olympiad in Barcelona to her anti-Vietnam War activism. She was not just a poet and a critic, but also deeply invested in photography and filmmaking. And so one of the things that I talk about is her plans to turn her poem sequence, The Book of the Dead, which is an investigation of the Gali Tunnel tragedy in West Virginia into a documentary film. First, I, I assume it makes reference to, is it Egyptian, the Egyptian Book of the Dead? Yeah. Kaiser actually saw the um, some of the scrolls from the Egyptian Book of the Dead on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the 1930s. The Book of the Dead is one of the foundational poems in the documentary poetry tradition in the United States. And it was the result of an investigation that Rukeyser took along with a photographer and filmmaker Nancy Naumberg to Golly Bridge, West Virginia. And um, essentially the poem chronicles what was one of the uh, greatest industrial accidents in U.S. history in which the Union Carbide Company was uh, carving a tunnel in order to divert water to um, power a steel plant. And in constructing the tunnel, they discovered silica. And um, they didn't take the precautions that were necessary to mine the tunnel for silica. And as a result, hundreds of workers, many migrant workers, many African-American workers, as well as workers who made their home in in the surrounding community, contracted the disease silicosis and died. And so Rue Kaiser and Naumberg uh, went to West Virginia in order to investigate and chronicle the events there. And then the poem sequence, The Book of the Dead, was published in Rue Kaiser's 1938 volume, US 1. It remains one of the most important poems in, in the documentary poetic tradition. Well, it remains Im- important, uh, as you point out, as a document of the event also in some ways, because Rukeyser is as famous as she is. And she is she is a well-known poet, and she in some ways keeps that particular disaster alive, which is a good thing on, on that level alone. You write in, the, in this chapter that there's a vexed relationship between poetry and documentary. The documentary poetry tradition in the United States really emerges in the 1930s in relation to the emergence of documentary photography and film. And, you know, at the time, you know, poets and critics were interested in what documentary poets were doing, but weren't quite sure what to do with it, um, because it was fusing materials that were considered unpoetic with high poetry like lyricism. And that tradition gets suppressed in the 1950s because of its social content. 
I think that you're right uh, about Walter Benjamin you used throughout the book. Um, uh, and specifically in this chapter, there's an essay, The Artist as Producer. And you use this uh, a little bit to discuss uh, Rukeyser's use of the word alloy and the sort of relationship between art, politics, and media. Well, I mean, I think that this actually relates to the question about documentary poetics. Something that I was trying to get at or get past in this chapter is this taken for granted, I guess, representational politics of documentary poetics or maybe of political poetry more broadly. And what I mean by that is that everywhere in criticism of the Book of the Dead or poems like it, there's this idea that Rukeyser is giving voice to subjects who didn't have a voice or drawing attention to a historical moment or event or problem that hadn't had attention. And certainly she's doing that. But I'm also trying to trouble or unsettle the idea of what it means to give voice to a political subject. Maybe one quick example of that for me comes in her notes for turning the Book of the Dead into a documentary film. And there's a scene in her notes where she's imagining Merle Blankenship, who's one of the workers who is dying of silicosis. In the poem, she just describes him dreaming and having restless sleep and coughing. And in her notes for the film, she describes his dream. And in his dream, he's drilling and um, there are tears running down his face. And then he realizes that he's drilling into his own chest. And so the ground of the tunnel has become his body. I read that scene as her exploring the ways in which subjects like Blankenship are trying to get beyond the traditional limits or ground of testimony and witness. I think that she's trying to explode the scene and she's trying to make us confront the ground from which we think about how events are represented or how people are given voice or how people are given representation. And so that's what I was interested in locating in the poem. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Out of a Brick Throat, How Poets and Poetry Matter, and our guest is Sarah Ehlers, author of Left of Poetry. We're talking about Muriel Rukeyser's documentary poem sequence, The Book of the Dead, about the Hawk's Nest Tunnel Disaster in West Virginia in 1931. The silica dust was such an important image for me because it's everywhere, and it's lodged in everything, and it's covering everything, and it's integrated with everything. It's a fascinating and uh, amazing poem or series of poems in, in a lot of ways. And the silica dust obviously being important also, as you say, because it's everywhere and it whitens everything. And white is a big part of the of the poem itself, the word white itself and the the um, implications of whiteness. As you already noted, I think, you know, the bulk of the people that ended up getting silicosis and dying were, I, I think, African-American. And, you know, there's a real issue here about the idea of those people as subjects subjected to this particular disaster uh, and then becoming subjects for this particular poem and then trying to understand what this means. I think you write actually in the Book of the Dead, every breath taken is filled with the detritus of industrial capitalism. And it's an, es- it's an essential fact of you know capitalist exploitation without care for human and natural forms of being at all uh, that this, this poem expresses. Yes. But, you know, I think absolutely that 
it changes the ground of political subjectivity and political personhood. I think, you know, to go back to my own biography, I have a memory of being in middle school and, you know, my father was between one coal mine was closed and another one hadn't opened yet. And he was working at an auto parts factory. And the whole time he worked there, he was uncomfortable because he just constantly had fiberglass in his skin, you know? And so there's a way in it that this incorporation of materials obviously changes the the body, but it can't not change the self. Well, it's a, a central point of the, I guess, the center poem of the series, right? Absalom. From Muriel Rukeyser's The Book of the Dead, Absalom. The case of my son was the first of the line of lawsuits. They sent the lawyers down and the doctors down. They closed the electric sockets in the camps. There was Shirley and Cecil, Jeffrey and Oren, Raymond Johnson, Cleve and Oscar Anders, Frank Lynch, Henry Palf, Mr. Pitch, a foreman. A slim fellow who carried steel with my boys. His name was Darnell, I believe. There were many others. The towns of Glenferris, Alloy, where the White Rock lies, six miles away. Veneta, Golly Bridge, Gamoka, Lockwood, the gullies. The whole valley is witness. I hitchhike 18 miles. They make checks out. They asked me how I keep the cow on $2. I said, one week, feed the cow. One week, the children's flour. The oldest son was 23. The next son was 21. The youngest son was 18. They called it pneumonia at first. They would pronounce it fever. Shirley asked that we try to find out. That's how they learned what the trouble was. I open out a way. They have covered my sky with crystal. I come forth by day. I am born a second time. I force a way through, and I know the gate. I shall journey over the earth among the living. He shall not be diminished, never. I shall give a mouth to my son. This is a poem that recounts the death of Shirley Jones, who's the youngest son of Emma Jones. He's laying on his deathbed and he asks his mother, Mother, when I die, I want you to have them open me up and see if that dust killed me. And those lines were taken from actual, not testimony, I believe it was a piece of journalism that quoted um, this story. One of the arguments that I'm trying to make is that that this image is not a form of testimony in the sense of providing um, a piece of documentary evidence in order to prove that, yes, it was the silica dust, it was the, the decisions of this industry that killed me, but also a way of exceeding the sort of normal ways in which um, evidence is provided and justice is administrated. And so that the body is refusing to be captured at a particular moment in time and is instead being opened up. And that relates back to the image of Merle Blankenship drilling into his own 
his own chest. It's that that movement of opening up is a way of um, opening up to different logics of of personhood and space and and historical time. It's really an interesting idea um, and thinking about political personhood not being frozen uh, in the way that you might be able to write it down or take a picture of it or an x-ray. Right, that that there has to be multiple views. The person is multiple. The person is multiple through time, and the person has a voice in many ways. I think you write at some point that um, this is a history that hurts. It's also opening the the power of opening the passageway between the living and the dead, which is another thing that the poem is doing. At, at one point in the poem, she said something to the effect of the dead strike out against history. You write uh, that Rukeyser attempts to make subjects present in a way that resists liberal modalities of self-identity or self-sufficiency. I think we've been talking about that generally, um, but when we talk about things like liberal modalities, it's, I think it's a, an essential thing throughout this book that we're really discussing liberal modalities throughout um, and how to understand what that means or how that narrows our perspective on history and poetry and anything else. And it's, I think, tied to this idea of um, individualism, as, as you write, self-identity and self-sufficiency. The idea of America itself is somewhat exploded in this poem in particular. I'm trying to take this poem sequence out from under the thumb of a kind of liberal way of reading in, in terms of like liberal sort of like inclusion politics, like, okay, this thing happened and now it's being represented. And so, so, you know, which is related to new deal liberalism as well, mm-hmm. sort of making the um, plight of the poor, the working class known for middle-class subjects so that they can feel sympathy and, you know, maybe do something about it in terms of liberal reform. And so I think that that's also why that notion of refusal is important to me. Um, instead of reading Shirley Jones asking for his body to be opened up as, you know, not being able to get a picture taken, it's refusing getting the picture taken. Or it's in this chapter that I talk about the scene in Jews Without Money where Mike Gold is uh, recounting how they used to throw vegetables and dead cats at the sightseeing buses that came into town mm-hmm. um, to view the poor. And so making sure that that kind of liberal sightseeing isn't being replicated in the way that we're reading the poem or thinking about the poem's importance um, and, and instead discerning the more radical possibilities for being even as monuments fall down in the South, there's, there's civil rights tourism. But that's, you know, an aspect of, of how we put it in a box, you know, um, have done with it, say we've moved beyond it. Look, we've memorialized it. Now we can move on. Yeah, you know, a formulation that's been helpful for me is uh, Jody Melamed's book, Represent and Destroy. She talks about the way in which literary discourse in the post-World War II era sort of often functions along the lines of what she calls a anti-racist capitalist liberal imagination. The inclusion of, you know, marginalized writers into the canon, for example, um, creates this sort of feeling within literary discourse that if I read and understand these, you know, narratives by marginalized people, then I am becoming a good person. And that's a simple distillation of, of her argument, but she contrasts that with what she calls race radicalism.
It's time for another break. This is The Lark by Aaron Copeland, which uses a poem by Genevieve Taggart for lyrics. Stay with us for more about why poetry matters when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about the politics of poetry in the U.S., challenging the institutional view that stresses form over content and depoliticizes the writing. In this segment, we'll turn to Genevieve Taggart and take a closer look at her poem, Funeral in May, which satirizes and buries the romantic poet to clear the way for a different singing. Uh, we'll turn now to Genevieve Taggart again. If you can, just situate her in her era for us. And let me just say at the outset that she seems uh, pretty great, and I'm sad to have never heard of her. Yeah, she's really fascinating. And, you know, so, um, and she had an extraordinary life. She was um, born in Washington and then um, lived in with her parents at a missionary school in Hawaii until she was a teenager. She attended UC Berkeley, and it's it's at Berkeley that she started identifying as a socialist. And she sort of moved from a, a kind of radical bohemian socialist position to being a resolute fellow traveler um, of the Communist Party. She published her first book in 1922. She published 13 volumes of poetry over the course of her life and was also a biographer of Emily Dickinson. She was involved in Communist Party politics, but she was also involved in community politics. So she lived a good part of her life in rural Vermont, and she was involved in things like the Committee to Aid Vermont Marble Workers. Uh, she eventually taught at Sarah Lawrence, uh, but she died fairly young, I believe from complications of hypertension. Well, this section uh, of the book starts out with a pretty serious attempt to, uh, I guess, unmoor the lyric from its apolitical space. You write that the lyric has been defined as, quote, the product, expression, and reproduction of the bourgeois capitalist subject and, as such, is antithetical to the aims of communism. I take what is seen in the tradition of lyric, which is that the lyric is part of a concern with the self. But think about that lyric concern with self in relation to a different thinking about the individual and about community formation that's related to the coming communism. What's useful to me is Taggart's line where she says that she thinks of herself as a poet who works in lyric effects. And I like that phrase lyric effects because it's sort of thinking about lyric as something that has an effect. And it's grounding the lyric in a relation to a material reality or a historical antagonism. So the argument that I'm trying to make is that communist poets like Taggart are reinventing the self of the lyric in relation to what the individual or what the self 
would have to look like in communism. The trick of that is that they don't know what the world will look like once full communism is here. And so the, the work of the poem is trying to open up the space for or create the conditions for that unknown. You focus actually on a particular essay that she wrote called Romanticism and Communism. This is from a 1934 issue of The New Masses. Uh, and it's in the, the section of your book is called Communist Among the Romantics, How to Read Walt Whitman. And it was pretty fascinating, again, because it says, you know, what is a romantic? It's not an individuated self alone crying out into the wilderness because you can't use language alone. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, something that she says in the essay, too, is that any potentiality that perhaps existed in some idea of the romantic subject has been completely marred by capitalism to the point that it can't be recuperated. And so we have to move on. One of the things that, you know, that I would struggle with as well with, with romanticism, I suppose, is, is sort of imagining the self needing to speak and be known as the self that prizes itself and not the being in relation. You know, something that I was thinking about is, you know, in romanticism and communism, Taggart essentially, you know, says that she doesn't have much use for Whitman as um, part of a, a kind of legacy of communist poetry. But she's really interested in Emily Dickinson. She's a biographer of Emily Dickinson. Um, She was planning another book about Emily Dickinson. The epigraph to her book, Longview, which was published in the early 40s, is from Dickinson, My Business is Circumference. And I keep thinking about this place where she talks about a Dickinson line about the wind rocking the grass. And I can't help but wonder if this kind of image is important to Taggart because it's such a material image of an effect. So as opposed to, you know, I become the grass, it's thinking about what happens when the wind hits the grass. What's the effect of that? What's the sort of materiality of that? And so for me, it's this idea that Taggart is everywhere interested in what's happening right in front of her. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Out of a Brick Throat, How Poets and Poetry Matter, and our guest is Sarah Ehlers, author of Left of Poetry, Depression America, and the Formation of Modern Poetics. We're talking about socialist poet Genevieve Taggart and her satirical poem, Funeral in May. So one thing I will say is that the poem Funeral in May was the occasion from which my arguments about Taggart developed over the course of of a long period of time. But this is the poem where my thinking about her really started. And it appears about halfway through the book, right after a small notebook section, where she repeats a lot of the arguments that she makes in Romanticism and Communism about what she says, the romantic notion that the individual is capable of godlike perfection This is poison food, and those who eat it die a lingering and pallid death. From Genevieve Taggart's Funeral in May. A poet suddenly cried, Metaphor, metaphor, why hast thou forsaken me? Lightly came a taunt from the crowd, Lo, the poor poet. But the offended voice amplified, opened the stops, continued splendid with echo. The enigmatic certainty that opens in art like a flower is the true worship of God. All else is barbarism. Ever since my last nervous breakdown, I have known this to be true. 
Somehow we must stand for the eternal, the august, in the midst of crude wars. Mysticism is a great comfort. The mystics use symbols. Not all the gold metaphor of the Roman angels is half so wrong. Not even the Baroque image so wrong as this. To be literal, literal, alas. Lovely metaphor. Redeem me from sin and deliver us from meaning. Then he died. Snap like any businessman. Worry overstrain. Burst a blood vessel. Bury the poet deep in his words, came the voice of the infidel. He will agonize no more. Pick flowers without scent for his grave. There he lies, silly boy. So dies the copy of God. He was never happy. Turn funeral to fate. Carry the effigy off. Burn the straw puppet, a hollow doll made by the rasp of dry words. Time now to bury the barbaric thing, or deck it with lilacs, faded full of rain, smelling of ruin. Dance in the meadows, young and old, stalwart and swarthy. Turn funeral to fate. Here we inter folly. Gluttonous villainy, stupidity, the vanity of man. Again and again we must dance on the grave of this death, beating down with determined feet what is already dead. Weeds growing here will wear to rags where we step. Dance, it is May. Of all Mays, the gayest with promise. You who are skilled with the songs, lead the way with your singing. And there are two things that are particularly interesting to me about the poem. One has to do with the scene or ground of historical antagonism. Because the infidels enter the poem and they're dancing in the shadow of the factory and the factory whistle. The scene of creation is coming up against the scene of industry. The poem ends with this line, you who are skilled with the songs lead the way with your singing. And to me, the intrusion of this you and the intrusion of the infidel and the voice of the infidel is a model for how Taggart is thinking about lyric. It's the lyric incorporating into it something outside of itself. She has another poem called Four Songs where she says, something not sung by me, but mine. What I see her doing here is is incorporating the scene of historical antagonism into the modality of the lyric, into the structure of lyric address. Out of that, you know, creating a new kind of expression within the structure of lyric. And the other part of that is this notion of song, because lyric is historically related to song and the singing um, from a lyre. But the way that we think about the lyric in terms of romantic individualism is a 20th century construction. I do want to, I think, press a little bit on Funeral in May and what it's doing and what is its work. It's, is it trying to, I don't think you use the word destabilize or decenter, but what's it trying to do and why does it matter? What's the strength of it to a left poetry? There are two important things for me. One has to do with this sort of truism about left poetry, that what happens to the lyric in the 1930s is that we move from the first person singular to the first person plural. And I don't have any beef with that argument or that idea. It's absolutely very true that we go from a singular expression to a first person collective expression. But what I'm trying to figure out in relation to Funeral in May is how some sense of what individual and community might mean in a coming communism can be articulated through what would seem a traditional structure of lyric address, which is an I calling out to a you. And so what I locate in Funeral in May is the insertion of the you. 
And that that's something different than just making the I plural. It's structurally changing the relation of the I to historical antagonism in a way that also has stakes for how we think about collectivity. The other important poem for thinking about that is the unpublished fragment in the plural that I write about where she writes, it was sung into me, it was sung out of me and into me and out of me, what became part of me and did I make a single song? And it's interesting that this poem that's about an I and a me is titled in the plural. That is an encapsulation, I guess, of that argument that I'm trying to make. Thinking about the lyric as an effect means what is the lyric folding into itself? I guess I'd like to know a little bit more or to try to understand the work of historical antagonism then within this space. What is What exactly does that mean? That she's sure. thinking about how the self is oriented toward historical structures of capitalist antagonism. And that that thinking about the self in that scene becomes part of the work of creating the conditions for a future where communism exists. I think it's part of the loss of these kinds of poets, these kinds of like serious efforts to sing those antagonistic songs, right? Very serious efforts that are lost in our sort of narrative of this art, narrative of politics, narrative of left politics, right? The loss of Genevieve Taggart um, is a serious one. You can read romanticism and communism into this practice, right? She's putting her theorization, you know, her thinking into her work, into her poems, and hopefully they illustrate that thinking antagonism. Does that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I I would just can't help but think of another poem by Taggart from 1936 called To My Daughter. And it's a poem in which she's recounting how a door-to-door salesman came to try to sell her life insurance for her child. And she says, uh, essentially writes in the poem, you know, the only assurance or insurance for my child is communist revolution. I got handed an Ayn Rand sandwich straight from the can. It tasted so bland. I asked a lass to pass me a glass of Engels' conditions of the working class. It's time for our final break. This is They Might Be Giants with The Communists Have the Music. Next up, we'll hear about the little-known communist poet Martha Millette, who does her part to turn fate to funeral when it comes to modernist poet Ezra Pound. To the marshal or the plutocrats in their beaver hats and the fascists Welcome back to Interchange. In our final segment of Out of a Brick Throat, How Poets and Poetry Matter, we turn to Martha Millette, the communist poet growing up in Depression America, who wrote intelligent children's poetry and spent years writing an unpublished critique of the career and reception of the poetry of Ezra Pound. We'll close with her poem, Unforgotten Village. Let's turn to our last poet, Martha Millette. 
again, give us a little bit of a biography. It seems she springs from the womb as a leftist. Is this what she might call or what is called often a red diaper baby? Or is she from leftists also? Uh, yes. So Martha Millette was the daughter of Russian immigrants. She was born in New York and her mother died when she was very young. I think she was almost two when her mother died. Uh, but her father was a garment industry unionist and he was also one of the founding members of the uh, U.S. Communist Party. At least uh, this is according to Millette's biography. It's a, according to a biographical sketch that she wrote herself. And she writes that, um, her father took her to her first May Day parade when she was 11 years old, and she joined the Young Communist League when she was uh, 15 or 16. And she was involved in the Communist Party throughout her life. Um, she describes herself as a working woman, a mother, an activist. She was um, engaged in direct action, so petitioning, uh, book distribution. She was an activist for tenants' rights. She was an activist in public schools. Um, and she actually was fired from her job writing for the National Maritime Union Weekly, I think while she was on maternity leave during the McCarthy era. And uh, she was also married to Senator Garland, who was a communist as well. I should say she's a slightly younger generation than Taggart and Rukeyser. So she's only a teenager in the 1930s. Um, and her adult life was very much affected by uh, the realities of, of the McCarthy era. Something interesting about her too that I actually learned from interviewing her son is that her father actually helped her as a teenager promote her poetry around to to communist magazines. So he he was also involved. He was involved in her political as well as her literary career. You mentioned uh, a little bit of her work or her sort of content intentions before. I think you begin your section on her with something of, you know, her work in writing children's poetry or songs for children, that kind of thing. And there is a, a real sense that she's writing for that content, writing to have her form carry a content carry a message, carry a, a thing to embody in some sense, to, to stick in your mind, to begin to form a particular kind of consciousness. Absolutely. And I think this is something that she says about rhythm. She says that poetry needs rhythm um, in order to combat the totalitarian state. You know, I think about this in two ways. You know, one has to do with her, with her children's poetry. Children's poetry is by its nature, usually seen as rhythmic. You think about the you know nursery rhymes, for example, and so um, meter is really important to her in creating these works, and she would continue to write works for children throughout the course of her life. Most of them have not been published, but I also think that she means rhythm in a more abstract sense as a kind of um, feeling or desire that's related to politics. And so one of the things that I'm interested in, what's the difference between meter, between this sort of metrical verse form and this abstract idea of, of rhythm as being a political tool? And actually, when I was doing research for the book and interviewing her kids, one of the questions I was asked was, well, why are you looking at all of her juvenilia, all of the things that she published as a teenager? Because she wrote all of this poetry into her adult life, and it was so much better. And you know, my two answers to that, one was very practical. I was writing about the 30s, and she published these works in the 30s. But also, I think her children's poetry is really smart. I think that she knows what she's doing and she's not just sending, you know, a message to children reading the communist children's magazine, New Pioneer. I think she's also really playing with the genre in super interesting ways. 
you talked already, you mentioned already the, her, her essay on pound and to try to, I guess, call out pound as, um, a totalitarian, uh, propagandist himself, but not just as a clear propagandist, but his poetry as well, perhaps. It's actually a book length study. And uh, she started it, I think, in the 40s or 50s. I think she started it in the 50s. And she worked on it for a long time. It was a book that was meant for the general reader. She wanted to, and uh, this is from the manuscript, she said, show obfuscations and omissions around lore about pound. She did a lot of work trying to historically detail connections that he had to uh, Hitler and Mussolini, but she was also interested in rewriting his entire biography. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Out of a Brick Throat, How Poets and Poetry Matter, and our guest is Sarah Ehlers, author of Left of Poetry, Depression America and the Formation of Modern Poetics. We're talking about communist poet Martha Millette and her critique of the institutional enshrinement of the poetry and fascism of Ezra Pound. She talks about Pound in terms of his fascism, his racism, his anti-Semitism. But she also points out his misogyny. She talks about the gender, gendered relationship that he had to Harriet Monroe, who was no friend to, to communism herself. And um, she edited a book of poetry for the Rosenbergs. And she spends a lot of time in the manuscript talking about the ways in which Pound was forgiven in stark contrast to the ways in which the Rosenbergs were indicted. Let's look at some of the work of hers that shows up in the collection Seven Poets in Search of an Answer. Unforgotten Village is really, really a, a powerful poem, I think. It's interesting to me, I think, because it also has imagery that, that kind of took me back to the uh, Rukeyser poetry as well, the sort of fascists uh, shutting the valley's throat took me back into the idea of the tunnel as a throat. This was published in 1944. It's an answer to what? To global fascism and U.S. racism. Most of the poets are against Hitler and Mussolini or against um, Jim Crow in the U.S. Martha Millette's Unforgotten Village. Spring came every year to Clodno Valley, blossoming with sheer birth joy. How all the children laughed to hear the upstart songs of perky little birds. There were sweet words and sighing looks of lovers, slow-stepping over their earth's grain cover, and dishes clattered with a merry young sound between the dreamy housewife's hands, as if they too were leaping from the ground, and men were deep at work within the land. Spring came every year, until one year the fascists came. shutting the valley throat with noose of shame, frightening the flowers with their boots, resting children from their mother roots. Pale were the women, paler than mist, when the men they had warmed in their beds and kissed were strewn by the guns like wheat on the ground, and tight on the hearts the barbed wire wound. The helpless homes were toppled when, deep in the valley lay the silent men. The colors of the Clodno Valley wept. The fascists sent reports. Ledice slept, expunged from time and memory of men. Then did they see rise terribly again, that Ledice, an angry flower flame bursting its seed over the earth's great ground. Ledice, a thousand cradles found. No rest for fascists, no peace by night or day. Wherever fascists turn, stands Ledice. Ledice. 
So Unforgotten Village is about Hitler's army's destruction of a Czech village in 1942. What interests me in this poem is the way that the ideal of rhythm that Molette expresses in some of her other writing um, about poetic rhythm or poetry being rhythm as a way of confronting the totalitarian state is expressed in this particular poem, which is about fascism's destruction of, of a place. I see this poem as using um, what might be called natural rhythms, the coming of the seasons, the song of birds, and also poetic device related to rhythm as a way of thinking through or imagining different modalities of time. She's also in this poem thinking about rhythm outside of something like repetition. And I contrast her view of rhythm in this poem to the kind of repetitive rhythm of capitalist machinery and industry that uh, Adorno and Horkheimer talk about in the dialectic of enlightenment. I think the interesting thing about the poems, her poems throughout is there is always spring. Yeah. And it also, you know, it makes me think of that other poem, Historian, where she says um, the beat was stilled that morning might be one. There are these sort of different notions or imaginations of time and and that is sort of in between these beats, there emerges some sort of possibility or some kind of political desire. Mm -hmm. But that's also a contrast to, I think, some of the other conversations that were going on on the left, which was that rhythm in a poem was about making a poem popular. And then that same piece that you mentioned, the, where the, the CIO organizer says that mm -hmm. poetry is, a, is alive, he says it has to have the rhythm of like, hamburger joints, which isn't what Millette was going for at all. You know, she was actually didn't like that at all. You know, she was very concerned with poetry becoming a commodity and with poets becoming professional critics and, and capitalists. I finally got to the point you were trying to make in my own understanding of this, you know, with rhythm um, and rhythm being um, as much about spacing and gaps and breathing um, that it finally hit me, I think when you talked about Horkheimer and Adorno, but the idea of the industrial clatter of rhythmic noise being a repetitive sound, you know, of marching feet, stomping boots, um, machinery, as opposed to the natural rhythms of, you know, the way uh, you hear a bird song. When it gets back to that really tricky kind of question, and I, I don't have it sorted out in the context of this particular argument, but, you know, when rhythm is, is the marching of boots, it's, you know, that kind of old thing that fascism and communism are the same thing, right? Everyone's marching in line. And so the way that Millette is thinking about rhythm is also trying to disrupt that conflation. That's, that's, that's again, and more reason to want to read more of her work. Yeah, for right. sure. That's our show. We'll close with Children's Play Song from Bill Evans, off of the 1971 release From Left to Right. Thanks to Sarah Ehlers for joining us to discuss her book, Left of Poetry, Depression America and the Formation of Modern Poetics, published in 2019 by the University of North Carolina Press. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. <laughs>